This podcast contains adult language and graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, it's Kayla. It's Katie. And you're listening to Murder, Mayhem, and and Merlot. I'm sick again. (laughs) I got strep for the second time in a month. So my voice is, again, not as it should be. She sounds lovely. Yeah. So I'm going to try to talk as minimally as possible. Okay. Which works because it's my episode today. So you don't have to talk as much. Well, yeah, Katie, I know. (laughs) I'm just saying. I, I won't talk. <laughs> just sit over and just shut up. I don't know. I mean, I'd say I can do that, but we'll see. What you got for me today? So today I have Daniel LaPlante, also yes. known as the man in the walls. I love a good case about somebody living in a house. Because <laughs> this is two in a row that I've done <laughs> where somebody was living in the house. It is. He took got back in now him. Yep. I love it. I just love the weird ones. You say that every episode, I feel like. It's because they're my favorite. I You're just, just like, weird, I, love, I love a weird missing case. I love a weird, like, that's, you say that every episode, I feel Why like. Why don't you just be a bitch? Like, <laughs> I mean, I could be a bigger bitch, as you know. <laughs> so, Tell the story, Katie. Okay. <laughs> so today, we got Daniel LaPlante, the man in the walls. Daniel LaPlante was born on May the 6th, 1970, in Townsend, Massachusetts, to Elaine Moore, who was his mother, and his father. Daniel had several brothers. His mother, Remanuel, I just put remarried in his name together. (laughs) Remanuel. She (laughs) remanueled. No, don't get me laughing. I'm going to get you off <laughs> His mother remarried to Daniel's stepfather. Daniel, throughout his entire life, was abused by his father and his stepfather. He was abused physically, sexually, emotionally, all of them. You could just all the abuse tops, just check a box because it was all of them for him. Through from the time that he was a little kid up into his teen years, Daniel developed some strange behavior as he grew older. Neighbors grew concerned with his behavior when he started going behind his home into the woods alone all the time. And one of the neighbors was quoted as saying, you'd see him walk out there by himself. That's the only place you would see him, the woods. So everybody thought that he was uh, getting a little weird, which is kind of fair because he doesn't have any sort of home life whatsoever. So that's not going to make for an awesome mental state and behavior out of a child. But they thought he was being weird just because he was going into the woods. Yeah, they thought it was strange that he was just going into the woods by himself. he's a boy. Yeah. They like to go, I mean, a lot of them like to go into the woods. I mean, my brother used to go play in the woods behind our house all the time. Right. So, I I mean... Unless he's out there hurting animals or something. I yeah, don't see that as really weird never, behavior. I can never find any reports like that he did anything along those lines. He was just going out there. 
And if he has a bad home life, maybe that's the only place he could find, like, solace. Right, is by himself in the woods. Daniel attended St. Bernard's High School in Fitchburg. Daniel struggled in school with his grades due to him having dyslexia, and he also struggled socially. He was described as weird and creepy by his classmates in school. And due to his lack of self-care, like he had really bad hygiene, he always had greasy hair, he would wear like dirty clothes all the time, and his social behavior on top of that, teachers referred Daniel to go see a psychiatrist. So he did start going to see the psychiatrist, and there he was diagnosed with hyperactive disorder, which is what we would now say is ADHD. After this diagnosis, his mental state seemed to decline even more. I don't know if it just made him feel worse about himself now that he has a diagnosis on top of having all of these other issues going on, but um, his mental state did go down. And when was this? What year? It didn't have a year on this one. Okay, but like... It would have been when he was in high school. So he was, I think it was probably like 1986. Well, I mean, so what I just mean is, like now, when you hear someone has ADHD, it's not as stigmatized. I mean, it still is, but not as bad in the 80s. That must have been really... Yeah. Rough. And he was in high school in the mid to late 80s. Yeah. So it was still... Yeah, that's that definitely... A thing. Would have given him some sort of, you know... Oh, absolutely. Eventually, Daniel's psychiatrist began to make sexual advances towards him during their sessions. You're kidding me. No. At some point, the psychiatrist began sexually assaulting and raping Daniel when he would come in for their sessions. This is a dark turn in his life because now in his mind, he realizes that every man in his life that he has put trust into, that you're supposed to trust as a kid, has turned around and abused him in some way. Every every man that's supposed to protect him. Yeah. His father, his stepfather, now his psychiatrist. Yeah. They've all turned and abused him in some sort of way. All of them sexually. Mm-hmm. On top of all the other types of abuse. So at this point, Daniel began breaking into homes and he would steal things from just little things from the house when he was a teenager. He started with just the break-ins and the small stuff, but by 15, he began tormenting the owners in the home. He would not only take things when he broke into the house, but he started leaving things behind for the owners of the home to find. He enjoyed the feeling of playing mind games with these people and tormenting the people. And he loved the thrill of causing them fear. That was a a thing for him with leaving these behind. He just liked to know that he left these people fearful, knowing that somebody was in their home. In 1986, Daniel somehow managed to get the number of a home phone and the number belonged to the Andrews family. It is believed that he got the number maybe when breaking into their home, but it was never confirmed anywhere as to how exactly he obtained the number. He started calling the family And the family consisted of Brian Andrews, who was the father, Annie Andrews, who was 15, and Jessica Andrews, who was 8. Daniel began calling the family, and he told them that he had gotten the phone number from a friend. Specifically, he was talking to Annie, because he would have been 16 at the time, and she Mm -hmm. was 15. He told Annie that he was a good-looking, muscular jock and was athletic. This, in turn, got Daniel a date with Annie Andrews. On the night of the date, Daniel shows up to the Andrews home. Mind you, he is not some good-looking jog. Like, you can look up pictures of him. He was short, not muscular, <laughs> not athletic. The complete opposite of what he was saying, Oh, yeah. So, as we said, when Annie answered the door, she was surprised to see the boy standing in front of her. Because this was not at all what she was told that she would be going on a date with. It's catfishing. Oh, yeah. Before 
before that was even like a term. Yeah. So stood in front of her was this greasy haired, covered in acne, unkempt, dark hair, short. He was only five foot eight. Daniel and Annie headed to the fair. Annie felt uneasy and uncomfortable the entire time. So after about an hour at the fair, Annie came up with an excuse to go home early. The night had taken an even stranger turn when Annie mentioned the fact that her mother had recently passed away from cancer. When someone says that to you, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. How are you doing? Is your family okay? That's awful. Yada, yada, yada. Things along those lines, right? Yeah. This is not at all what Daniel was interested in or asked her. Daniel asked questions like, quote, how much did she suffer? Or how much pain was she in? And he seemed really giddy and excited when he asked her these questions. So when Annie got home, she hoped that that would be the last time that she ever saw Daniel LaPlante. Yeah, that would have disturbed the shit out of me. Yeah. Daniel had other plans. He was not done with the Andrews family. At some point in the following days, Annie and Jessica held a seance in their basement. Who did? Annie and Jessica, the two girls. So Annie that was on the date and her younger sister, Jessica, who was eight. Just a random seance? They just held a seance because they were attempting to contact their mother. Okay, yeah. Okay, I get that now. Yeah. After nothing happened during the seance, the girls headed to bed. But when Annie and Jessica were in bed that night, they began to hear knocking from the inside of their bedroom walls. The girls, believing that it was their mother, started talking to this quote-unquote force and would get replies via knocks through the walls. This continued for several nights to follow, but now other things were starting to happen. It wasn't just the knocks anymore. Objects began appearing and disappearing inside the house, and furniture was being moved around when the two girls were there alone. The two girls were often by themselves because they don't have their mother anymore. Annie is 15 years old. She can be at home and watch her sister, who's eight, and their dad was at work. So when they would come home, they were usually home alone until their dad got there. Right. This led the girls to believing that this was not their mother, but this was a demon that they had summoned into their home. The girls would tell their father, Brian Andrews, about the happenings, but he thought that it was just the two girls doing it all themselves. Brian believed that his daughters were acting up due to the stress and depression of losing their mother. And when kids are by themselves, too, and they're just the least bit spooked, their minds sometimes run wild. Oh, yeah. And that's probably what he thought. I mean, I when I would walk home from middle school, I was I would come home and I would be alone for a couple hours if I didn't walk to my mom's work because it was just down the road. Yeah. I would be home alone and I I would take like kitchen knives and I would put them in different places in the house just in case. <laughs> so my parents don't know that, but they do now. <laughs> I growing up, like I lived right next to a church mm-hmm. and I was like, I would convince myself sometimes that I would see things in the church windows. Oh God. Yeah. And just like spook myself out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, churches. Churches are creepy when no one's in there. (laughs) In January of 1987, Annie and Jessica were home alone while their father was at work. The two started to hear knocking in the house, but this time it was not coming from the walls. It was coming from the basement. Terrified, the two girls grabbed a knife, me as a kid, (laughs) from the kitchen and made their way to the basement. When they got in down into the basement, on the wall in the basement, written in what they thought was blood, was, quote, I'm in your room. Come and find me. Oh, no. (laughs) Now, if I found that as a kid, light a match. Set this bitch on fire. (laughs) I would have been. Mom, dad, Caleb, we're homeless now. I would have been out of that house so fast. Oh, my God. Like, so fast. No. It it was an absolute no from me. Yeah. Annie and Jessica fled up the stairs to their bedroom, and they called their neighbor. They went to their bedroom? They just went upstairs to the bedroom. 
They were like, well, he's in the basement, whoever this demon is. So but it, uh, the notice that I'm in your room. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, they're, so you're, their kids are kind of dumb. Like, you weren't <laughs> smart when you were a teenager. <laughs> I know. It's just funny. Yeah. So they went to a bedroom. I don't. It doesn't say, like, if it was Annie's or Jessica's bedroom, but they were in somebody's bedroom. They could have gone to their dad's bedroom, for all we know. Right. So when they called their neighbor, they waited for their dad to arrive. When he got home, he scolded the two girls for doing this, and he decided that it was time to get the girls into therapy because he still thinks that this is them doing this. Weeks later, in October of 1987, Annie heard the knocking coming from inside of her bedroom walls once again. Annie went into a room to investigate the noises, only to be greeted by, quote, I'm back, find me if you can, written on her wall in blood red. Annie grabbed her sister and took off to the neighbor's house this time. Thank God they left the house this time. From there, the neighbor called their father, Brian Andrews, at work. Brian was super mad when he left work. You know, this time they have went all the way to the neighbors. They've got the neighbors involved. They've written on the walls again, he thinks. He's just fed up at this point. Brian, when he got there, decided to go look around in the house for himself just to prove to the girls that there was no one in the house and that he knew that it was them doing this. But when he got inside his home, in the living room, he discovered furniture that had been moved around while he and his daughters were all next door. They couldn't have done this. No one was there. They were all at the neighbor's house. Brian made his way to his daughter Annie's room. In the bedroom, he found written on the wall, quote, marry me, question mark. Brian turned around and was now facing a young teen dressed in his deceased wife's clothes, makeup, a blonde wig, and a hatchet in hand. What? Yep. This is very psycho. This is very psycho. I'm dressed up as my mother, like, except it's not his mother. It's theirs. Oh, you mean like the movie? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I mean, it's psycho, period. But this, like the movie Psycho, is what this made me think of when researching this case. Dressed in her clothes? In her clothes. Lord. Mm Mm-hmm. This teen was Daniel LaPlante. Brian immediately lunged at Daniel and the two got into a scuffle, but somehow Daniel got away and just disappeared. He didn't see him run out of the room. He just was there and was gone. So Brian was shocked at how Daniel just disappeared from this room. The police were called and began their search of the home. Police found a crawl space behind a cupboard that was built into the wall in Annie's bedroom. Police opened the hatch to the crawl space and found Daniel inside curled up in a ball. So that's how he was able to get away so quickly. Police pulled him from the crawl space and took him into custody immediately. After Daniel was apprehended, police continued to search the rest of the house. They discovered that Daniel had been living inside of the walls in their house and accessing this through another crawl space from the basement. Daniel had made small peepholes throughout the entire house into the walls so he could watch Annie's every move when she was home. That is wild. Yeah, he's he's wild. He's That's one word to describe him. Yeah. Daniel had been pretending to be the dead girl's mother for months now and living in their walls. And I guess when they did that seance, he was like, ooh, I'm going to take this and run with it. He actually had, there was, you know, like in the basement, they'll have like those little windows, kind of like it's level with the ground, but you can look down into someone's basement. Yeah, like I have in mind. Yeah, he had reportedly been watching them through that window when they did this seance and was like, It's unknown if he already knew how to get into the house through the crawl space and had been in the walls before, or if he discovered that after watching them do this seance. It is unknown what the big reveal with him all dressed up was supposed to be and marry me on the wall, because that was obviously meant for Annie. And it's just unknown how that was supposed to play out, but police are pretty sure it probably would have ended in some sort of bloodshed or murder 
because he's got a hatchet. So this was not your run of the mill proposal here. Well, I just don't know where he thought that was going to go dressed as her mom. I, I but anyways, I, I mean, none of, I, none of this makes sense. So yeah. Daniel was taken to, ju- to a juvenile center. His bail was set at $10,000. He was only held for a very short period of time. Daniel's mother had posted his bail after remortgaging their home to do so. Once he was released, he almost immediately started breaking into homes again. He committed a series of break-ins around the town. On October the 14th, 1987, Daniel broke into Raymond Pendale's home and stole two Ruger 22 caliber guns, two holsters, and some cash. Daniel asked his brother, Stephen, and a friend, Michael Pulowski, for bullets. His brother did not give him any, but Michael gave him some. He told them that he needed the bullets for he was going to make some sort of like mega bullet kind of thing. I don't really know. I don't understand what he was trying to say that he was doing, but that's Mm -hmm. what he told them. On December the 1st, 1987, around 5 p.m., a man named Andrew Gustafson made his way home after receiving big news from his work. And he was very excited to celebrate with his pregnant wife, Priscilla. Andrew made his way into his home and up the stairs into his bedroom in search of his wife and kids. The house was oddly quiet, so he just kind of felt like it was a little off when he went into the home because he's got two little kids. Yeah, it's rarely quiet. Yeah. Andrew entered his bedroom and discovered his wife face down on their bed, covered in blood and unmoving. Andrew called 911 instantly. When police arrived, they found William Gustafson, who was five, their son, dead in the bathtub upstairs, and Abigail Gustafson, who was seven, drowned in the downstairs bathtub. Both children were dead. William and Abigail's cause of death was drowning, though Abigail had blunt force trauma to her head and compression of her neck, which is when the spinal cord becomes compressed. Yeah. People can develop this condition over time, and it can also be caused by trauma. A lot of people will have this condition from, like, car accidents and things of that nature. Right. Priscilla had been raped and shot two times in the head through a pillow, so practically point blank. Carolyn LeClaire, a chemist with the Department of Public Safety, found semen and sperm cells near the corner of the bedspread, a portion of a condom on the floor next to the bed, a beer can in the floor next to the bed, and several pieces of a porno magazine that had been ripped up and discarded in the trash can in the kitchen. So whoever did this has had a whole trip for themselves. They came in, they murdered children, raped and murdered a pregnant woman, and then looked at a porno magazine and drank some beer because they're a piece of shit. Certifiable. So that's awesome. Certifiable. Certifiable. It's a thing. You can be a certified piece of shit. I mean, yeah, you sure can. Detectives also found seven ligatures inside the home and a gag that was made from a sock. They theorized that the suspect restrained the family at gunpoint, gagged Priscilla, raped and killed her, and then killed the two children in the bathtubs. The murder weapon was found to be a twenty-two caliber gun. Guess who just stole one of those? Oh, not not one. Two. Two of those. You want to take a stab at it? You want to guess? Daniel. Daniel, that's the one. A plus. You passed the class. <laughs> so it didn't take detectives long to suspect Daniel LaPlante in this murder because he'd just been released from juvie for this weird, creepy thing of living in a home where they were pretty sure he was going to kill someone. So he was awaiting trial for that. And he also had a history of strange behavior and break-ins. And lastly, the fact that Daniel's house was just through the woods from the Gustafsons' house. It's practically, they're right behind each other. On December the 2nd, 1987, police showed up to Daniel's house one evening 
to question him about his whereabouts the day of the murder. Detectives knocked on his door and he answered, and when he asked where he was the day of the attack, Daniel said that he was home alone all day watching TV. So That's he a has, great alibi. Oh, yeah. yeah. Solid. Mm-hmm. Believable. Yeah. Do you know what's not certifiable? What? That alibi. No, it, it sure ain't. It sure ain't. <laughs> sure shit. So after the questioning, Daniel took off. He gone. He left. He made his way to Pepperell, Massachusetts, and broke into Pamela Michaela's home. Daniel forced her into her van armed with a 32 caliber revolver. He told her to take him to Fitchburg. At some point during the drive, Pamela just jumped out the van. She just... She just yeeted herself right she, out. Yep. When After Pamela jumped out, she ran to the closest police station or to a phone to call the police. Someone in the town recognized Daniel from his photo that had been being aired on television. Daniel had been aired on TV and considered armed and dangerous. So this person recognizes him, calls the police. Two days later, Daniel was apprehended after he was found in Ayer Park inside of a dumpster. Hmm. I mean, he is trash. So. Fitting. Yeah. A search warrant for Daniel's house was given. The police found one of the Ruger 22s in Daniel's room in a laundry basket under some clothes. Ballistics revealed that the same brand, class, and casing were used in that weapon as they were in the murder scene. Trooper Sean Baxter found a blue and white flannel, Gustafson's nameplate, and a pair of soaking wet gloves in the home. A search with dogs was done in Daniel's house, the Gustafson's house, and in the woods in between the two houses. The dog sniffed the flannel and started tracking through the woods from Gustafson's all the way to Daniel's yard, stopping just feet from his front door. More physical evidence was recovered. Daniel was found to be a type A secretor, which happened to be the same as the semen sample found at the crime scene. Detectives found fibers that had been collected at the murder scene in three places that had the same characteristics from the flannel found in the woods, socks in Daniel's laundry basket, and his belt. Fibers from the sock used as a gag matched fibers found on a gray shirt that Daniel had been wearing the day of the murder. The wet gloves in the woods also tested positive for gunshot residue. And the reason they were soaking wet is because he was wearing them probably when he drowned the kids. So there's a lot against him. I mean, they got ample amount of evidence to, to take this to trial. So Daniel LaPlante was booked and charged with the first degree murder of Priscilla, Abigail, and William Gustafson. After the trial and everything, a year later, after five hours of deliberation, which is a decently short time for deliberation, Daniel LaPlante was found guilty of all three murders and sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. Daniel has since shown little remorse for his crimes. He attempted to sue the courts for violation of his religious rights several times from the years 1988 to 2014. He claimed that he was a Satanist and that he needed certain objects and things to carry out his religious practices, but was denied by the officers in the prison. He lost all of those lawsuits. In 2017, Daniel appealed for a reduced sentence and said in court, quote, I do not have the words to fully express my profound sorrow, but I am truly sorry for the harm I have caused. From the very essence of who I am, from the depth of my soul, I am sorry, end quote. The appeal was denied. So he's still in prison. <laughs> Where he belongs. Andrew Gustafson passed away before he could see Daniel resentenced again in 2017. 
Allegedly, on Andrew's deathbed, he said, quote, Don't ever let him out. He should rot in prison. End quote. Daniel is still in prison today, but is eligible for parole when he is 62 years old. Well, let's hope that never happens. Let's hope not. There's been some, and you can look up the news articles and stuff about it. There's been some uproar with his case in the like past few years, around 2017 and a couple years after that, when there was like a law passed or something to where you couldn't sentence someone under the age of 18 to life. And so all of these old cases were being reopened and relooked at with kids that were, you know, 16, 17, that were tried as adults and sentenced to life in prison and him sentenced to life three times consecutively. So in the words of... At what age? He was 17. 17. So, you know, in the words of Cat Williams, consecutive means one after the motherfucking next. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) I mean, I get that, but... At the same time. And he as he he, you know, he as absolutely an adult, deserves to be in jail. As an adult, when he was in prison, he never showed remorse until he tried to appeal his case in 2017. Never. He was suing the prison and shit because he was a Satanist and his religious rights. And it never says, and I understand that everyone, you know has the right to their own religion and stuff in America. And that's fine. No one's saying anything against that. But he's probably asking for weird shit while he's in there for them to have said no. Or like stuff that could harm another person. Yeah, because you can't have contraband. Right. And And I'm sure a lot of that was considered contraband. Yeah. So he has all of these years to show remorse as a grown man in prison. And never once does he. Until... He tries to appeal in 2017. Like, I don't give a shit if he has any remorse. I don't I don't care and, and neither should anybody. I he he doesn't deserve no, freedom. He, and he killed a pregnant woman and two children. Yeah, I mean, and no one really knows like what the motive was. Why does he need psychological help? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I hope he got that in some way or get, you know is getting and that in some way. He went through the process before his trial with yeah. the whole insanity plea and he was found to be same so did he go through his own trauma that absolutely was not his fault yes and you see this all the time where hurt people hurt people right and you can feel bad for these people when they were kids for what they went through as children but but that doesn't he 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 is where he needs to be absolutely so i agree with andrew gustafson he should rot in prison Mm mm-hmm absolutely well that was a doozy he's he's a whole he's a whole basket case yeah that was a doozy from the living in the walls to dressing up as a dead woman yeah to murder man well, he he went from one extreme to the next yeah i mean I'm, they usually I'm breaking into homes they usually i mean a lot of killers escalate like that now i'm gonna live in your walls oh yeah <clears throat> it's kind of like what the golden state killer did he escalated pretty quickly Mm -hmm. started breaking into homes and then went from breaking into homes to breaking into homes and raping women Mm -hmm. and then from raping women to murdering them so he escalated you know oh yeah a lot of times that happens it's just not all murder right away right yeah so 
they get the thrill out of what they're doing at the time and then it just escalates. Oh, so. yeah. They just need more. At some point, it's just not enough mm-hmm. and they have to take it up and up and up. Yep. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening, Kayla and everybody. Sorry mm-hmm. that you're sick again. Yeah. It's uh, it's been a rough, rough few days. <laughs> she's, she's I, I don't know how month. one gets strep twice in one month. I know how you got it twice in one month because you didn't get a new toothbrush. That's a possibility. <laughs> That's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. That's a possibility. But, yeah, I don't know. It's been it's been awful. So, well, hopefully you're better next week for your episode. I should be. <laughs> I'm hoping. Well, well, we will see you guys, or we won't see you. We always say that every week. Yeah, we do. It's <laughs> fine. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. <laughs> All of the sources we used for this episode will be linked in our show notes. We'd like to thank Mikey Kinley for audio and editing and our friend Avalyn Yulaberry for our cover art. Make sure to like and follow us on social media on Facebook and Instagram. Our Instagram is M three podcast and you can find us on facebook under the name of our podcast which is murder mayhem and merlot